Welcome to Neo Academia, where the walls of the ivory tower are shifting. I'm your host, Natasha Mott, and this week I sat down with Tani Burlow to talk about how she's crafting a neo-academic career that combines her passion for history and her business acumen. Tani makes bite-sized history clips for her 800,000 followers, but she also gives monthly lectures for her History Club Patreons, where she explores ancient civilizations. Neo-academia is possible first and foremost because of you. Thank you for sharing your most valuable resource, your attention. And if you're interested in making better use of your attention, I got you. Neo-academia is also possible through support from Readocracy. Readocracy is on a mission to save the internet by making how we inform ourselves matter. So they've created a first-of-its-kind technology that rewards people for consuming high-quality content. Readocracy makes the content you consume count, awarding points, badges, LinkedIn upgrades, and insights into your information diet. These insights are like a Fitbit for your mind. They can help you understand how your information diet is affecting how you think and feel. Readocracy has won awards and backing from Mozilla and Betaworks, and is used by curious minds at Stripe, Cisco, Zoom, and over 30 other top companies and schools. Neo Academia is proud to be sponsored by Readocracy and has a series of collections curated by me and each of our guests on Readocracy.com. And for access to the Neo Academia resource collections, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter for this episode's show notes. Now let's explore. Wait, okay. How many milliliters do you have? This is a hundred milliliter beaker. <laughs> Mine's <What>? 20. <laughs> I have like a 30 milliliter one and then like this big boy. It's the only clean one. And no one's going to know that it's uh no one's going to know. No one's going to. Mine's real because I've had, it's been that kind of day. But, you know, I noticed this. I got this from um, when I worked in a lab. They were like an old lab was closing. And I just noticed it says CO on it. So I'm guessing that's for cobalt. And then NI is also inscribed on the side. So at some point there was like nickel cobalt in it. Fantastic. At least it's not lead or mercury, right? Well, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, cheers. Cheers. Mm-hmm. The measuring beaker shot glass is a movement of mine. I love it. Well, I mean, consider me part of it now. Speaking of movements, I joined your uh, your Discord. I saw you. Now you get to see it firsthand. Everybody in there was so nice already. Honestly, I... Call them my little Patreon family because they actually are just such lovely people. My Discord is like the evil twin of your Discord. Like you go in there and it's like, if you don't get insulted, then we don't care about you. You know, it's like, like I met somebody on Facebook and I was like, you should join my book club. And then they come into book club and we're like, hey, asshole. (laughs) No, that's like sort of an Australian tradition as well. You're like really good friends when you start getting insulted. We use it as a litmus test right away. We're like, are you cool? Are you cool? The truth is we're pretty rough with ideas in there. Here's the problem that I noticed. There was actually a Twitter thread the other day where someone was like, how do you debunk a whole person? And I was like, bro, we don't don't debunk people. My big thing is intent. I think it should be valid that if someone was intending to be kind, then we should just take them at that. People make mistakes. People don't say the right thing at the right time. I said things 10 years ago that are probably not the best. But like my intent now is to be a nice person. I'm just going to try to be that. Okay, so here's something for you. Do you think the villains actually think they're villains? Yeah, having known a couple of narcissists, they really take it as a, as a compliment. So like I remember this one individual that I worked with who was a overt narcissist. When he got that diagnosis, 
to him, that was a massive compliment, which was so bizarre to me. But he was just like proud that he's like, yeah, I am the best. I do think I am top tier. Like Kanye level 5,000. Kanye is a megalomaniac as much as you can possibly get. Yeah, like him and Donald Trump. It's just they're in another realm. It's actually funny, like one of my friends who is in like the psychology realm, I was like, is there a space in the academic world for someone to go back throughout history and have a look at people, someone like Joan of Arc, who's celebrated as this amazing female warrior, but she heard voices. She's schizo, Joan of Arc is schizo. At the time it was interpreted that she was seeing angels because that was the belief system at the time. But if you actually look at that, there's signs of schizophrenia, like all sorts of stuff. And like, it worked out for her, obviously. I mean, didn't did she get burned at the stake though? Yeah, she did. But like, you know, in the long run, <laughs> in the long run, like, you know, people still look to her as like a, a strong female figure, even though she was just a girl. But is there a place in academia for someone to go back in history and be like, potentially this is what their mental state was? I don't know if you can diagnose dead people. Retroactive diagnoses? I think they do anyways. What are mental health diagnoses except a set of clinical criteria? They're hugely subjective and reliant upon the opinions of not only yourself, but the people around you. Which is interesting to me because you're literally a neuroscientist, aren't you? Literally, yeah. That is so freaking cool. Because, um, uh, yeah, like I earlier this year was diagnosed with ADHD and I've been learning about this whole diagnosis realm being so based upon males that when females present very differently and especially mildly, it's just not picked up until adulthood. I've been like living my adult life with this diagnosis that I never knew. I just thought I was crazy. I, for my whole life, was like, I talk too much, I'm too much, I think too much. Like... <laughs> Sex differences in mental health are something I was hugely interested in. In my postdoc, I wanted to study the neural circuitry of affective disorders because there are some links with same-sex reproductive behaviors. There's a locus in the hypothalamus that if you stimulate it, you can induce humping or fighting. First of all, the good news is, I guess this is bad news as well, but mental health diagnoses are relatively recent, so we're not that far behind. Yeah, interesting. Weird one, weird question. I recently did a video about the sacred band of Thebes. It was a sacred warrior band and it was made up of 150 male couples. So I was reading about this and one of the rituals was after a battle, they went off and each couple had post-battle sex. As you do. Yeah. Is that because of the hypothalamus being like activated? That is a great idea. And I think it might also have to do with some sex difference type stuff. Testosterone, um, well, obviously men have more testosterone kind of circulating, but testosterone is released when you exercise as well. So it could be that there's some like exertional type thing after slicing a bunch of heads off and shit. Okay, like, cause I always thought about that. I was like, you know, in, in the ancient world, like what, just come off the battlefield and go to sleep. What do you do? Uh, like come down, come down. <laughs> And so I was like reading about it. I was like, oh, I guess it kind of makes sense. Like if you're in this like really violent circumstance, you would sort of need to like, yeah, calm down. Like, I mean, you know, everybody knows hypothalamus is four Fs, feeding, fighting, fleeing. And, you know, one thing when we used to do animal surgeries all day, 
I did hundreds of animal surgeries. So we'd open up these rats and cauterize the inside of rat guts and then sew them back up and let them do their thing for a little while. And the, the stench in there was disgusting. Like rat guts smell like the worst thing you can imagine. We did a dissection of rat once and I'll never do one again. Like the live rats with a full warm gut, we would, you know, just open them up and uh, close them back up and then we'd be starving by the time we got out of morning surgery. So we'd just all go eat lunch. Like, <laughs> like just nothing. Well, I think we were more ravenous afterwards because there's something maybe visceral about it. I don't know, but we were, everyone joked about it. After we do surgeries, we're always starving. I was so excited to talk to you because I was like, oh my God, we could be besties. I just, I just know. Oh yeah, 100%. I actually woke up and I was like, yes, I have a good day today. You know, like, yeah, it's a good day. I had a shit show, but I was looking forward to this all day. So you said something yesterday. We were talking about History Club and I saw one of your videos where you were like, bro, you can't judge things in history. And I think people try to look back at history with the lens of now, and you argue that we should not do that. I've learned that from scholars. So like the scholars that I look up to, I watch their stuff, I read their papers. They're sort of always like, we have to be objective. We in the modern day have all these expectations on morality and ethics, and we're looking back in time and we can't place that on those people. I learned it the hard way when I posted a TikTok and it was about Alexander the Great. And in modern movie depictions, he's always hot. Yeah, hot, straight, that's it. Because he did have a wife at some point, but it's very clear if you read anything with a LGBTQ lens on, he went both ways. For some reason in like the 1800s, I swear scholars were just like, yes, they were very close buddies. It's like, no, they weren't. Anyway, so I post this TikTok about that. And at the end of it, I said, look, if I was to pick a title, I would probably say pansexuality because in my understanding, pansexuality is you love whoever you love for the person. And my comment section went to war. And I, with that, realized in the modern day, everything's in a box. Are you bi? Are you whatever? But back then, that wasn't the case. The literal words that they had for sexuality didn't have labels. It was just what it was. And so that was my, like, hard-ish, it wasn't that bad, lesson of being like, okay, I really need to take my own ethics, my own understanding, my own morals out of the equation and just objectively look at the history for what it is. And that's hard to explain to 800,000 followers all the time. <laughs> you know what so I mean? when you tell them that Alexander's pronouns were not the great, like they're upset with you? like <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it more comes up with real dark parts of history, which obviously is a hell of a lot of it. I see people struggling with the duality of like, ancient Rome wasn't necessarily evil, but it wasn't good either. It was both at the same time, if you were living in ancient Greece, you would think that Greece is great. But if you lived in ancient Persia, you would think that Greece sucked. That whole duality of history, it's hard for people, I think, in the beginning to wrap their head around. Darius II killed all these people. He must be evil. Yeah, but not if you're a Persian. People struggle with duality today. And I think if you give them 
a fake context or something that is not, history is not fake, but it's not real. It's not tangible. You give them a construct to play with and say, see, look, you can look at it two different ways. This might be a brilliant way for introducing a dialectic and an ability to hold two thoughts at the same time. 100%. I think that's so accurate. I literally have a tattoo, this tattoo on my arm, I got. It's a serpent, right? And I come from a very, very conservative Christian background. Some would call it a cult. Others would not. That's my background that I come from. And I'm no longer a part of that anymore. In a lot of Christian like legends and mythology or whatever, the concept of Satan is depicted by a serpent. But then at the same time, you look at the Old Testament and Moses with his staff and the snake on it, which we still use today as a health symbol. And so this symbol of the serpent is its jewel. It's both evil, if you will, and salvation at the same time. And that coming out of my sort of childhood way of thinking of good and evil and no in between and really leaning into that duality is everywhere and in everything. And so I had to obviously get something tattooed on me. I love it. <laughs> so that's, that, that's what this, this tattoo means because it's such a big part of like the way that I think now. So I have also a Christianity tattoo remnant from my, you know, my first tattoo when I was 18 is a cross. And I don't regret it because it's a part of my upbringing and what I went through that brought me to this point. But I got that shit on the back of my ankle when I was 18. And then I kept getting more and more and more and more. And um, I think getting one on your forearm probably makes you a tattooed person. I don't know. I, don't, I think so. But yeah. When I got these... That was when I was like, oh shit, like this is real. And the chair of our department in physiology asked my advisor one time, like, who's your tech with all the tattoos? And I remember feeling so offended that I was like, oh, I couldn't possibly be a PhD student because I'm so heavily tattooed. This is whack. Academia is a conservative place, if you think about it. And the vast majority of academics are like boomers at this point. So is the vast majority of Facebook. <laughs> Facebook, academia, like same, same thing. <laughs> they probably will not be saying that, but I bet they posted their opinion on Facebook last night. <laughs> You're probably right. And actually the funny thing is I have joined some of these groups because we kind of get brainwashed into being academics. If you leave, you're a failure. And so when I was leaving, I gritted my teeth through it, but there are all these self-help groups for people who want to escape the clutches of academia. Wow. And I went there just a couple of months ago looking for people who still want to think about things and are excited. And I realized that these groups are like 12-step programs for leaving academia. The light has left these people's eyes. They're just trying to survive to get their next job because they have this scar of what academia did to them. And if there are a whole 25,000 person support groups online for you to leave a profession, what the fuck does that say? About the system. Yeah, 100%. I very much am considering going and getting my PhD, but I finished my master's in 2019. I'm going to leave it as long as I want to leave it. And I don't even know if I'll do it because I love learning. I really loved my master's degree because it wasn't that super intense academic, I call it crab in the bucket mentality. You're pulling your colleagues down to feel better than or more intelligent than. And personally, that's not wisdom to me. In my opinion, wisdom is the top tier of intelligence. 
you've applied the knowledge, you've gotten a result. If you are intelligent, but you're not applying that and you're doing the polar opposite of that to just feel more intelligent, then what? And also my other big thing is I believe the biggest gift you can foster within yourself, very philosophical sounding, is the love of learning. And if something's killing that for you, then anything can be advice. If if you don't love learning new stuff and changing your point of view and that nice struggle of that cognitive dissonance, if you burnt that, feel like I don't want to I don't want to have one more idea that you've killed something that's really beautiful. Oh, that's that's exactly what's happened to them. But you, okay, let me say this. And, this, and I'll make my argument for why I don't think getting a PhD is useful. I probably would still do it just because, oh, I fucking loved it. I loved being in the lab. I had an awesome advisor. And if you do it, make sure you get an awesome advisor. That's all that's I'm going to say. everybody says. That's what everybody Anyone who starts a sentence with, I loved my PhD, ends that sentence with, make sure you get an awesome advisor. Everyone says it. <laughs> Will you have to pay for your PhD? Ideally not. Don't do it if you're forking out money because then you're literally just paying for a credential. I was kind of floundering for a few years trying to figure out what I was going to do before I started these podcasts and I'm having the time of my life. But I was like, I want to go back and do a PhD in astrophysics. And then my husband's like, the fuck for where are you, you going to work at NASA? I'm like, no. He's like, then why don't you just do your own PhD in astrophysics? And um, I was like, God, you're right. But I think we don't carve out the space to learn in our own lives. And I think if we really want a life of learning, we're going to have to build that somehow, build a structure. I was in a similar place. I was in this job my background is business. It's not even history. Always been a history nerd. I started my bachelor's degree in history, but then ended up changing into business because I was like, I'm not going to make any money here. No offense, historians. But always been a hobby of mine. And when I was like really struggling with anxiety, I would legit turn on a history documentary. And it was just like this anxiety relief for me. I didn't realize how much I read how much I watched, how much I consumed, and how much I actually learned just by using reading about the past as, as a coping mechanism. And then I just started doing TikTok videos about it. And now it's literally become a part-time job. Me just literally reading scholarly articles, breaking archaeological news for fun, and then posting for fun about it. It's actually fun. And I get to learn the coolest stuff. And yeah, I can't go by doctor yet, but I don't really care. People like learning the stuff. I get to learn for fun, which I enjoy to do. And I built a really awesome community and it's getting to the point where I can almost make it my sole career. I'm a little attached to that little bit of corporate-esque. Oh, really? What do you like about it? Tell me, because I hate it. I fled. My business background has been in startups. And now me and my core colleagues, we're a business consultancy firm, but we're more so like hire a C-suite, right? Let me, let me steal a Gen Z term. I love that for you. <laughs> for you. <laughs> but yeah, like most people are like, Ugh. the one thing I don't do is finance. I don't touch finance. That's why we have our guy who is our like CFO in every circumstance because math's just not my strong suit. 
I don't think it's about that. I think sometimes the abstractions of that kind of stuff get a little hairy. And taxes, ugh. Anything too monotonous bores the crap out of me. I will make mistakes because I'm bored. <laughs> That's why I think I was a terrible experiment. I was not a terrible experimentalist, but I know that some of my colleagues were probably better at me because we'd be doing pipetting or whatever, and we'd have these 96 well plates. And my creative ass is sitting in there because it'd be three in the morning. I remember I went in after a Snoop Dogg concert one night because I had to get these damn cells done. And of course they fucking died anyways. But I'm like pipetting and I'd be drawing designs in my well. And then I'm like, oh fuck, this is probably a really bad way to do an experiment because technically these got this got medium 5.3 seconds beforehand. And also I should be making sure that I'm putting the pipette tip exactly against this at a 90 degree, the same way every single time. The reality of doing anything experimental and financial and a lot of these things mathematical, the tedium is like, you have to be a tisty, you know what I mean? But working with startups is cool because you get to see the wheel turn. Whereas my first job, I worked at Genzyme, which was just picked up by Sanofi, which is a large pharmaceutical out of France. 10,000 people. And then after that, I worked at a startup, which was only 200 people, early stage startup in biotech. I loved that. But when I was working in the medical field, it was very regulated. And so me, a creative thinker, I want to have fascinating conversations and I'm not allowed to. It's very prescribed. It's basically sales. What I would show up and do is sell these people on science that I'm presenting because me, I like look like I know what I'm talking about and I'm cool and personable. Like this company must really have it together. And um, that just kind of like stole my soul from my body. Yeah, 100%. If I can't visually feel something growing, if I'm in a business that's, that's at that point where you just show up at 8 a.m., you do your job, you go home checked out. I'm gone mentally. But if I'm with a company that I'm growing and building and I can feel that growth, even though yes, it can burn you out majorly, I get that creative fix. And so that's why I enjoy it. And also why I enjoy history because I've made it creative. What fulfills that itch in your brain? Yeah. My co-host for my other podcast and I have a joke that there's always a secret objective in each podcast that sometimes we both know about, or sometimes we each have our own secret objective that the guest doesn't know about, but there's like an underlying goal and thing that is kind of entertaining us. And I feel like I had to have that at those jobs where I didn't have creativity because I had to do something. The, the secret objective that I had in the final years of me doing the MSL work was I couldn't wait to get on the plane every week and see who I was sitting next to because I'd travel every week and I sat next to the craziest people. And I would basically, my routine was I'd get in the seat, I'd pull out my laptop, I'd get a Prosecco and I'd start typing away and just observe what's happening on the plane, get pissed drunk, right? And just have a great time. My secret game is how much time can I create for myself to write and to observe. Maybe I'll write a book about the people I sat next to on a plane. So that was the game I played that kept me going. I completely agree. My last contract that ended on a bad note, I mean, I came out financially on top of it, of course, because we have to be bad bitches to be women in, in these fields. But the emotional drain of it all, I would just have to set these little tiny creative moments that just got me through that year. And that's all I lasted. I lasted just over 12 months. And I was like, I am out. 
I'm out, pay out my shares, I'm out, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm lucky, a new contract with my normal colleagues popped up literally, like within a couple of weeks. But um, yeah, I just, I just couldn't do it. I was like, it's just too, too, too monotonous, you know? I mean, but I think this is um, like the quiet, destitute nature of our world that we live in, that a lot of us do things we don't love because we have to. Um, I And I even think academics are doing that now at this point, getting back to that kind of thing that talking about you going to get a PhD. My question is why? If it's just for the credential, is it really worth six years of your life in a sense to study on one thing, to drill down? You could make a secret challenge within getting your PhD. You could make a ton of content about it. So there's another Australian creator who has been such a beautiful friend to me during my TikTok journey. She's in the history niche and her PhD is literally on the history of pornography. That's her PhD. She loves it. It's so interesting, obviously. But having a conversation with Esme is like, did you know that the oldest dildo is 25,000 years old? And you'd be like, no, please go on. How do we even know that? She has found the most niche of niche PhDs to do. And throughout her entire journey has literally made it a come along with me content. She's just like a breath of fresh air in regards to exactly what you were just trying to express. She has found this PhD that, yeah, it's hard at times. It's still a bit of a grind, no pun intended. However, she just, like the books she reads, the stuff she comes out with, and she makes TikTok videos out of it. And she's got over two point something million followers now. And she's just opened up this world of opportunity. And I guarantee if she didn't start TikToking about it, I don't know how many people would have like read her paper, but... I know now when she finishes her PhD, it's going to be distributed to 2.2 plus some million followers. That's crazy. Yeah. So that's one example. Esme is from Melbourne. I live in Queensland. I always compare Melbourne sort of Australia's like New York-esque vibes. Queensland is like California, maybe on a good day, Florida on a not so good day. I'm from Queensland. And then I've got another friend of mine who did her PhD in developmental psychology. And she was in a similar position, loved her PhD, traveled all over the world. They use like robots to teach kids and stuff. And she's doing the same thing. She just went to Scotland for some reason. I'm not really even sure why, but just a bunch of scientists. And they're using their PhDs as content. Mm -hmm. The only problem is, I'll give you my experience, because when I first got out of grad school, eh, it was a few years after, and I started an Instagram, these kinds of content creation were really looked down upon. It was like, ugh, you're bastardizing this. They think it's cheapening everything. So don't be surprised if you encounter people who are really antagonistic to what you're going to do and what you're going to do for the rest of your life, probably with your PhD. And these people are holding on to this old format of academia that it's a place for knowledge and this is, it's very sacred. And now we're like, yeah, well, we're spreading it out to everybody. We're like the knowledge whores. I was going to say fairies, but sure. But yeah, we just open our book for anybody. Take the information. I read it. 
and I can summarize it into a three-minute video and you can know it. It's funny to me too because you're right. Ten years ago, I can't even think of any scholar from like the Instagramming days, but TikTok is, in my opinion, completely flipping social media on its head in a good way. And also so many people in so many sectors that have PhDs, they don't care. Like this one guy, he's from America. He's a black man. He's a gay man. And he runs what he calls the Rainbow Lab. He literally runs a lab of PhD students. I don't know what in, probably bio something. And he's like hired by this university and he does not care. And I know that there would be so many people out there that would be like, how dare he runs his clinic like that, blah, 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 or his lab or whatever. But he's got millions and millions and millions of followers that love him. Yeah, you may get one antagonistic scholar being like, you're bastardizing our craft. But who cares when you got millions of people being like, I love what you do. Thank you for making this knowledge accessible because I can't afford to go to school or whatever it might be. You bring up an interesting point, though, because it's not just one scholar who gets upset about those kinds of things. So historically, it was like your biggest things for getting tenure, so our Rainbow Lab example, he'd have to have a grant, he'd have to have several publications, he'd have to have all these things as an academic, and now he's showboating, too. But I think there's a lot of, like, haterade being drank in academia because you got some people out there that are real stars. They can actually do the work, understand it, and then disseminate it more accurately with more entertainment than you ever could. And I think as well, when you are in that academic pipeline, when you're like, okay, I move from spot A to spot G and I will have success, that's how I do it. Check, 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 check. When you're in that mentality, that's not a creative space. And that's okay. If that works for you, cool. But if you're looking over to like, a minority, so like keep in mind, he runs the Rainbow Lab, which is a symbol for his queerness, which is not liked by a lot of conservative academics. And he's also a black man in America. 50 years ago, he wouldn't have been able to get tenure. He wouldn't have been able to get a grant, most likely, because just of who he is. And so I love that not only has he succeeded in all of that, but that he can now creatively rub it into <laughs> everyone's faces because this inclusive generation of people, they want to see that. They want to support these people that haven't really had the chance before. Another example, there's this one doctor. He's a middle-aged white man and he's in academics. He teaches in the medical field in some uni. And he just swears on TikTok. That's all he does. He just teaches stuff on TikTok, but he just swears as well because he's like, yeah, I'm a human being. And he responds to all of these comments being like, you're a professor. How can you possibly speak like that? And he's like, I don't give a fuck. Oh my God. I'm about to go on a tangent about both of these people because to me, neither one of these creators you're talking about, white man who swears, black man who's queer and does Rainbow Lab, neither one of these things is outlandish. And... The fact that we have to kind of go, oh my God, you're queer, you run a lab. Oh my God, you this is like Facebook level shit to me. And one thing I'll say about academics is there aren't a lot of conservatives in academia. I'll just say that. 
academia itself is a conservative institution because it wants to hold on to knowledge and be a structural institution, but it's doomed because it's bursting at the seams with progress because the, the entire premise of academia is to explore new, new knowledge and be progressive. So it's holding onto this crusty ass institution and it's just such a paradox. When you teach people to critically analyze things, they're gonna turn around and critically analyze the system they're in, right? Now, okay, there's some issues like with letting go of everything. Like, so if we don't hang on to something, like in science, for example, we make a lot of assumptions, but we have to have a foothold to say, we think these things are true. And as long as this is kind of the framework, then we can go buck wild. Once this foothold starts getting loose, ooh, ooh. And so the problem with a lot of disciplines is, you hear people talk about like postmodernism and the problem with this kind of stuff is that if we lose all ability to determine direction, we're just free floating. Nothing has any meaning anymore. So I do think we do need some tradition. We do need some anchoring to the present, to the past, but it's always a contentious push and pull between the conservative nature and the desire to push forward. And, and honestly, if everybody could just get fucking comfortable with being uncomfortable, they'd see that this is the dream, you know? Yes. I feel like in like my creator brain, the equivalent, equivalent of this is the fake news. So we need to make sure that the information you're getting a million views on is actually based in some type of fact. And the way that I like to do that is to just have a scholarly citation before I pop something up on the internet. I feel like even in the front-facing, performative side of things, you do need that grip onto academia sort of to like marry the two together because otherwise you just end up <laughs> talking absolute nonsense because it's so easy. I've done it before. Like I've created videos on something that I thought was a good citation, but because I'm not doing a literary review, I've just skimmed the article and been like, oh, here's my focus point for this video, done the video, and then had a mutual history buff or whatever. He stitched the video and he was like, look, this creator, love what she's on about, but she said this, this, and this, and it's been disproven. And I just responded to his video and I said, let's address the controversy. And then just laughed and said, there is none. He's an Egyptologist. He bloody knows what he's talking about. Isn't that what really academics is, but in a very casual way? Yeah, it's much more cutthroat. You go up to the microphone at conferences, you're supposed to ask the question. They don't ask questions like, actually, uh, have you read so-and-so's paper? Because if you had, you would know that do 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 And then the person at the pulpit's like, yeah, well, do 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 And it's this backbiting that happens. And yeah. nobody concedes. And I think that's fine. You don't have to concede. You just have to be able to look at things critically. Yeah, exactly. And also, I like what you said before, just being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Do I really think that I know everything? Hell no. But I think some people maybe have lost a little bit of a grasp on that. I don't know if you saw like, the Nobel Prize in physics recently, like the entangled particle theory. I was like, oh, okay. So I'm just going to have an existential crisis about that because what do we know now? You know, so like, especially in science, shouldn't we be accepting 
that we're constantly being wrong and not just by not just moving forward but moving backward too because the increase in tech that has allowed artifacts and very well known and studied artifacts too a really good example of this is herculaneum when mount vesuvius exploded pompeii was covered but herculaneum was covered in a different way and it essentially froze herculaneum in time and wood was preserved furniture was preserved whereas in pompeii that wasn't the case papyrus was preserved as well now for years it's been lost to time because the paper was so ruined that nobody thought that we'd ever be able to read it and we're talking libraries and they've only just invented this method and I'm going to butcher it, but essentially they slam a whole bunch of X rays at the paper and then the paper rebounds some rays and they're able to measure that and actually get Greek letters from that rebounded X ray or whatever it is. And so these ruined libraries of scrolls, which we thought we'd never be able to read, have now become readable. And a lot of the scholars were excited about potentially finding the works of Sappho, of Lesbos, that had been lost to the world. We're finding things forward and backwards, <laughs> history and in the quantum realm or whatever. Wait till they tell you that space-time isn't real. <laughs> I'm just at this constant peace that I love being proven wrong. It's great. Oh my gosh. Can we be like, team, prove me wrong, please? Because on my last podcast, and even this one, the, the one I put out today was about a journal of speculative science. And I think the scientist in me kind of gasped. I was like, <gasps> if we're not demarcating the difference between science and non-science, all is lost, all will fall apart. And then I thought, oh no, wait. So if we anchor everything in experimentation, we can have all the ideas that we want. Bring uh, forth the ideas, be wrong. And that's kind of what I love about TikTok, that we have this opportunity to say all kinds of stuff. And I think the big fear is that Tanny Burlow is on TikTok telling people all this shit that is going to make them believe something. Like if you think about the zeitgeist and the reason we do things in the world, it's because one figure says something and then everybody's walking around singing the mama say, mama sa, mama kusa. And like nobody knows what, what the lyrics are. So if you say one thing, you've got a million people running around going, Tanny Burlow said this, Tanny Burlow told me that. I think the fear is that we're disseminating information incorrectly, but I think you have to be a little bit brave on that realm and trust. And you can trust that people can handle wrong information if you're properly educating them. You can't really control the audience that comes to you. You can put out that content into the world, but... You do take on an extra level of responsibility, at least that, this is how I feel. As my audience has grown, I have personally taken on more responsibility because I know that my facts need to be straight before I go and put something onto the internet. Back when I had three followers, I could say whatever I wanted, but no one cared because three people would see it. And so I feel like you're going to get people that don't care and that are just doing it for the views. But in my personal opinion, I don't think they last. Okay, so here's the question. Do you think people judge you harshly because of the way you look? 100%. Yeah, 100%. But 
it's a two-sided coin. People judge me harshly because of the way that I look, but people follow me because of the way that I look and what I talk about, right? I get a lot of male anthropologists, archaeologists that will be a little bit combative. A lot of them I've become friends with, which is hilarious. I always say that like your detractors can sometimes become your biggest fans. So when they realize that I am competent in my ability to have a debate, they're like, oh, okay, she's not just some ditzy history bimbo. Yeah, but then at the same time, I feel like there's not a lot of women my age that sort of look like me talking about the stuff that I talk about. And I actually think that that's an advantage in a lot of ways because I have some what I now consider mutual friends who are the stereotype and who honestly make better, more accurate content and more, way more interesting stuff, but just in a more luxury type of way. And their accounts don't do as well. So like, so true. I feel like it's sort of a bit of both. Yes. But then also like, they call it like pretty privilege, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> question is, why would people be upset about you being cute and, you know, showing your body and talking about history? What does that mean? At least in my corner of the internet, you're seeing this, like some of my mutual friends, like Reb Maisel or like Legal Baddie, these are lawyers and they're stunning women. And they have millions of followers because they're really just like breaking that. And there's one, I forget her name, there's one surgeon and she's Mexican of origin and immigrant family moved over to the States. She became a surgeon. She's hot. Like, and she shows herself off in a bikini and all sorts of stuff. And, and she's like, just because I enjoy my fun outside of my job doesn't make me any less of a surgeon. And it's like, yeah, obviously, that's not rocket science or news to one of us. Okay, so the way that I look at it, I posted a TikTok a while ago that was like, explorers don't have time to care about their hair because they're, you know, they're exploring. And it was this cute little girl doing it. And I was thinking about it because a lot of times, to me, I don't have the energy or time for these kind of like, I just wrote about it in my Substack, menial hair tasks, you know, like, cleaning and doing your laundry and doing your skincare routine. In my brain, it naturally wants to think about other shit. And I have to train it to do these grooming tasks and stuff that will make me presentable. And people kind of resent that. I always talk about it like my brain works on priorities. It will take the most important thing and put that as priority one. So like I have always worked that way. So me folding my washing will forever be the last priority all the time. Me cleaning my house will never be a priority in my personal brain because in my brain, that just isn't important. For me, my learning, my job, and my now appearance, uh, and there was a very long time where I really didn't, and I think because of the religion that I grew up in, I actually didn't know that I was like sort of attractive, if that makes sense, because I was always told to kind of like hide myself. So coming out of that and having this following and then just having all these people telling me that I'm pretty or attractive, it's still kind of, I don't really, <laughs> this is going to sound really weird, but like <laughs> I started to just realize like, oh, 
a big number of people think I'm attractive. So when I like do my makeup online, people enjoy that. And I also get to talk about cool stuff with them. I don't know. That's what I do too. My brain is prioritizing too. It's like, I have to make myself look presentable. And then I can also do this thing at the same time. I won't put makeup on, but if I go live and people are watching me put makeup on, I'll put the makeup on. So I feel like it's, um, I forget what even my point of that was, but. Well, I think our point is that you and I both agree that a clean home is a sign of a boring woman. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to settle on that opinion. <laughs> okay, good. Good. Well, we'll at least agree on that. I'm a really good cleaner. I was always the messy kid. Always the messy kid. Don't get me wrong. I like it when things are clean. I just don't really like doing the task. And I think I suffer from like a, <laughs> a superiority priority complex. It's like, well, why would I be spending my time cleaning if I could be learning about Hellenism? We're like the same person. Um, no, but getting back to priorities, because we've agreed cleaning is not, you have a degree in business and so you have a brand. And so when I first came upon your stuff, I don't remember how, I think I was like searching different subjects and looking for people who I thought would be a good fit for this podcast. And I found you and I was like, okay, hot girl history. That's what we got here. That was what my mind went to. And I was just like, damn, okay, also I need to learn from her because I think the biggest thing I've struggled with in doing all this is like, I don't want to have a brand because I want to keep an open mind, you know? And I think that probably has become my brand. Like if you think this, she's going to throw it back at you. And it's like, it's, it, and it's probably actually a negative brand if you think about it, because nobody wants a constant volley like that. I think the whole concept of personal branding is actually a macro conversation in and of itself. If you look at our recent history of marketing in general, you look at the industrial revolution up until like maybe even the 90s, advertising as a corporation was the proper thing to do. You got your Coca-Colas and what Apple and stuff, and they hide behind that corporate entity. They hide behind that brand. And it has worked really, really, really well. But we're kind of in this new phase where the the average consumer, and I'm saying average because a lot of the baby boomers have expired, <laughs> don't trust corporations. You look at your elder millennials down especially down to your Gen Z, they do not trust corporations. And we've had the wave of Instagram, which in my personal like analysis of the market is becoming outdated, where we had the influencer realm. And so we had this big wave of people trusting people. And, and you go back to the consumer psychology of that, we trust word of mouth more than we trust an ad on TV, more than we trust a billboard. We've always been built that way. And so as the internet has evolved, people were trusting these influencers to tell them what they needed to buy. And so I feel like we're even starting to evolve out of that. Really? Yeah, I feel like people are starting to not trust the still image influencer now. They want video. They want 
the real shit. They want people to like talk to them and like. I don't know, Tanny. I don't agree. I think the way I see TikTok is like it's like Instagram light. They still want the image, but they just want a little bit more. Think about one of my favorite creators, and I'm not ashamed to say it anymore because I like what I like for the reasons which I like it. Sammy, Jeff Cote or whatever. Got a lot of tattoos. She wears designer brands and she does these. It's Tuesday. Let's get dressed. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She wears the buckle up course. Yes, yeah. She has a harness business. Yeah. I love her videos because they are just captivating. I hate designer brands. I think the entire concept of it is unethical and I don't like any of it. I think it's just lowbrow shit dressed up in a highbrow but like bow. But every time she does it and she like holds the little thing, I'm just like, like, I don't know the sensations in my brain. There's some ASMR visual triggering. It's a heuristic that I think we are susceptible to. I don't know quite what heuristic it is, but it's this calming familiarity that I know she's going to say the same thing every time. But then she does these little videos where she gives you a little bit more. She'll tell you a little bit about her life. And it's just as fucking perfect. And she does like a little, oops, oops, I dropped this. It's like, no, you fucking didn't, but whatever. Yeah. So I think they don't want real because I give real. Okay. I tell you, they don't want that. I feel like it's interesting that you know her name because her brand is her. And I think that's what my point is that I remember at the start of my career, I never wanted anyone to know my name. And now I'm all over the place. Yeah. It's my nickname. My full name's Tanika. And it's weird now because everyone knows me as Tani online. And I used to only get called that by my best friends. Very few people call me that name, but it's me. It's not a brand. I think personal branding is a really powerful tool. It, well, obviously it is. Yeah. I think as well, the younger demographic the way they can see through ads, I feel like someone needs to do a study on it because it's almost like they literally will look at an ad and be like, oh no, but their favorite influencer could be buckling up their harness and they'll go and buy that without a doubt. It's so right. interesting. I think what you're, what you're talking about is they've adapted very quickly to recognizing like, and I think the brain just knows very quickly what works and what doesn't. And if you're outside of that narrow window, wherever the window kind of shifts in the culture, if you're outside of that, you don't go anywhere. Oh, I was chatting about it in my Discord yesterday. I'm in this weird moment in time where I'm having all these management firms reach out to me being like, do you want to sell our lump of shit? I don't know. I don't really care. And I'm like, sure, on TikTok, right? And they're like, no, no, on Instagram. Oh yeah, they sell better. Well, yeah, but then I was having this interesting conversation with this manager the other day and I was like, why is that? And he said, oh, because they've done Instagram in the past and it's always worked. And I was like, okay, sure. And then he went on to say, oh yeah, you know, the brand's profits have really plummeted in the last two years. And I was like, do you think that's maybe because they aren't advertising on TikTok? And he was like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Are you for real? Like, the funny thing is like, I was like, okay, well, um, let's chat soon. And he was like, obviously like my following's much smaller on, on Instagram because so many of my followers on TikTok don't have Instagram anymore. 
So they were wanting to pay me my fee for an Instagram post, which is like much smaller than a TikTok post. And I was just like, I'm going to actually say no to this just because I think it's a waste of money for the brand. I don't think this is going to make any money for you guys. And honestly, I can't be bothered selling your vitamins. Like, I like to sort of sit back and chat with people like yourself just to sort of analyze the space we're in because it's exciting and interesting. And yeah, I think what you're saying, there's a lot of brands that are still making more money off of Instagram in general, even though Instagram's kind of dying. You know how it is in business. You have a thread you have a vertical in a sense, and you go with that vertical and it costs money to experiment and go off and do another one. And I think also I looked at this um, survey on Twitter the other day and I did a TikTok about it. In terms of the value of a follower, TikTok is lowest. So one follower on TikTok is not equivalent to one follower on LinkedIn. Exactly. Like, wow. But that's why it's so interesting. Back in the beginning of Instagram, all you had to do was make it to the explore page. I'm talking like way back when it started, right? You got to that explore page, you went viral. You got tens of thousands of followers like that. Look at like Tammy Hembro and all these big people that came out of Instagram. That's how they did it, that explore page. And that's where TikTok is right now. So now... You look at someone like Tammy, she's got like millions and millions and millions of followers on Instagram. But back in like 10 years ago, that wasn't taken seriously. Back then it was, oh, okay, how many followers do you have on your Facebook? <laughs> there's, there's always this flip. And I believe that TikTok's very much in that early phase. Like at this point in time, the best advice, use TikTok to shuffle people onto other platforms. Like you've got, you collect your audience here on TikTok and you provide the fun and entertaining, engaging content and you don't ask anything of them other than, hey, if you like this, come over and join my Patreon, follow me on YouTube for longer form videos or follow me on Instagram because I can make money as a creator on those platforms. And in exchange for that, here's a whole bunch of content for free. I do think that TikTok will have that pivoting point and, but that's my analysis is that we'll see the value of a follower on TikTok increase in the same way that we saw a value of a follower on Instagram increase about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. well, it'll probably happen when the next platform comes out because that's what happened with Instagram. It started to die when TikTok started to rise. And I think one thing I haven't really said before out loud is that I think people's pride gets in the way of their growth and success. A lot of times. 100%. I bang on about this constantly. To be a TikToker, you literally have to not give a shit. You have to not give a crap that people will see you without makeup on. And so if you are somebody that has a very guarded personal brand, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. People want to see aesthetic content. Like you were just explaining with, is it Sam, that the creator, people still want that. But a lot of people are sick of that because they got so much of it on Instagram. And so I think a lot of people that have done really well on TikTok, like Selena, Spooky Boo, I think she's one of the biggest accounts, and a lot of beauty influencers that aren't just, I'm beauty, they talk and they're different, you know? And it's just been super interesting to sort of see 
what is and what isn't gaining traction and also the slowing down of that instant virality. Like there still, it does exist, obviously. Probably over a year ago now, I had a video go viral. I was typing, angry typing. It was a 15 second video. And at the end of it, I was like, bitch, that was the whole video. It went viral. It got 5 million views. Recently, I've had a video go viral about the Notre Dame and it's sitting at like 15 million views, right? So the term viral just in that 12 month period has completely shifted. And it's interesting to me that a year ago, 15 second videos were the thing that was being boosted. And now that video on the Notre Dame is three minutes long. You're telling me that 15 million people sat there for three minutes listening to me talk about the Notre Dame and a lead sarcophagus in the bottom of it? I don't know, I don't know. I mean, we're here for it, you know? The other thing about it is, is that, like you said, you did your typing video. And I got to tell you, the shit that's gone viral for me, I'm filled with so much regret. Why am I wearing a stained shirt in that friggin' video? You know what I mean? Like, you just don't know. <laughs> the worst part about the shit that goes viral, I swear to God, my whole life I've been cast as a villain. And it really fucking burns my ass because I try so hard to be the anti-villain. I'm like, no, if you consider the light and the dark of everything, and it's like, no, you're a villain. You look like a bitch. You look mean. You said one thing that I thought was um, rude. For example, when I first got a thousand followers, I started going live and I was like, what the fuck is this? And I did a whole podcast about what it means to go live on TikTok with my co-host. It was a challenge. I said, come live with me and see what the fuck this crazy shit is. It's weird when they do the matches and stuff. And so I started back calculating how money is converted on TikTok gifting. And I did an expose kind of video where I was like, this is how much money TikTok is taking from you. And what I opened with, and it always works when I open with some kind of like ambiguously bitchy sounding comment. Like I pointed to like a gifter up in the top of like a live. I did a screenshot behind me. I said, are you a top gifter? If this is you, I'm not following you. And oh my God. And even though I told them why, I said, because I don't like that TikTok is taking 66% of your money. I don't need you to gift me anything. Your attention is enough. The big creators came for me. They were like, you're just ungrateful. It's not enough for you. But I was like kind of smashing their bread and butter because I was like, basically, you have people come in your live and tell them to tap, tap, tap the screen and send you money. And you're mad at me now because I told them what you're doing. Yeah, see, the whole live thing confuses the... This is actually one of the big creators that I've just seen wiped off the platform. Well, I've got a few strikes against me because I use like, you know, remember that sound that was like the bread kneading sound is like. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I yeah. posted just a picture of myself like this. And I said, I have a paid sub stack, you know, and it was like, <laughs> they fucking removed it. I don't like it when you spruik openly about your other platforms. Well, I learned that. I got banned once because I showed a painting and in the very background was a naked Renaissance lady. Mm. Yeah, but like I can dance in my bikini, that's fine. But a Renaissance boob, hell no. The scholarship, learning, no, absolutely. The critical thinking, no. Like shaking your titties, yes, yes, allowed. Um, yeah, that's what we want. <laughs> well, oh my god, we've talked for so long. This has been so fun. It um, has. I could probably talk to you all day long. Thank you so much for having me on. 
I might come to your next lecture thing. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for exploring Hot Girl History with us today. For more information on Tanny, behind-the-scenes footage, and all of our Redocracy resources, subscribe to the Theory Gang newsletter at theorygang.io forward slash newsletter.